welcome to Taking Care of Business. I'm Jackie Mitchell. Our first guest is an expert in leadership and team performance. She is a author of uh, it's her second book called The Dynamic Leader, and I have great pleasure in giving a very warm welcome to Shelley Flett. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good, Shelley. Good to have you here. Now, your second book, what was the first book? Uh, so the first book was The Dynamic, uh, sorry, The Direction Dilemma, uh, oh. Why Knowing What You Want Makes You a Better Leader. Right, and then that was a natural progression to book number two, The Dynamic Leader. The Dynamic Leader, yes, I get the titles mixed up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see why. So what's the main difference between the two books? Uh, so the first book looks at uh, having a vision or having a goal in the future that you then uh, make decisions in order to head in that particular direction, whereas um, the dynamic leader is more around this is how I lead a team of people. So it probably goes from self to then um, leadership uh, right. as a progression. And so what, what led you down this path? How did it all happen? How did I become an author? Yeah, well, sort of, well, yeah, what, what sort of motivated you or inspired you to write a book about this area? So I've been uh, running a leadership program for probably the last three and a half years and through every program that I ran, I felt like I needed to go deeper into detail. But, of course, with only one day, mm. uh, I, I didn't have a, a way to do that. So the book was really... Um, created out of running the program so many times and um, just having a lot more depth of the topics and things that I was talking about. So um, the book came really naturally as part of the, as a sort of, I guess, the feed off of the um, one day program. Right. Yeah. I'm always curious as to why people write a book as to their motivation. You know, some use it as a business card on steroids, some uh, use it for their brand, some, and that's an interesting one that you've said you've actually wanted a platform to be able to delve a little bit deeper beyond the one day sort of bite sized learning into something uh, a bit with a bit more meat on the bone, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So do you, but like, was there any point that you've thought, I'm going to sort of make some money out of the sales of this book? No, even now people ask me, you know, how many books have you sold? And it's really um, not front of mind. What I want is for leaders out there to get value out of it, to be able to actually take it and implement it. So I'd love to be able to say, this is how many leaders have gone and, you know, applied different things from my book and this is what it enabled them to do and enabled them to be as leaders. Yeah. Um, That's what my passion is. Great. Yes, I can. I can hear the passion. So, team performance specialist is that? Is that how you introduce yourself? So, if someone meets you at a barbecue and asks you what you do for a job, what do you say? Yeah. It, uh, so, leadership and, and team performance is definitely the two words that come together when I'm introducing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think you need both. I think you need leadership for team performance, and I think you need team performance for effective leadership. So they sort of come hand in hand. Yeah. So what was your background? How did you how did you end up here well, at the moment? I mean, things can happen in the future, but where you yeah. are right now, what was the training and background that you had? So I actually worked in banking in an operational capacity um, for 10 years prior to um, starting my own business and going out on my own. And um, the, the real driver for me was when I first became a leader, I was sort of thrown into into leadership and didn't get a great deal of direction. I had a lot of advice, 
um, in hindsight, it was well-meaning bad advice. Mm. So, um, you know, it, the intention was really great with um, the leaders that were giving it, but it didn't suit me and my personality and ended up getting me in a lot of trouble. And um, and so I, I kind of buried myself in a hole and it took three years to dig myself out and to figure out how do you actually lead a team? How do you deliver results as well as be nice to people and create a good culture um, without, you know, burning out or spontaneously combusting, which I think a lot of leaders sort of feel the, the pressure and the stress of. Right. So from your own uh, experience, you said that you sort of fell into a hole. It took you three years to get out of it. Is that right? Did I hear that right? Yeah. yeah. So, so how did you get out of it? What were some of the tools that you used besides a shovel, the metaphorical <laughs> shovel, <laughs> yeah. to get out yeah, of that hole? Needed a backhoe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think uh, I think wallowing in self pity. So I, I think that was a really important part for me. I was really, I think I was really angry and wanted to blame other people um, to start with, and then um, and then I had probably had some really good role models in my life, um, including my older sister, who the book is dedicated to, um, who said, you know, pull your head in. There's things that you can do. There's a lesson to be learnt here. And, um, and it wasn't until I decided that I was going to make a lesson out of it as opposed to being a victim because of it um, that I was able to move forward. Um, and then I was just in search of anything and everything that I could um, improve my self-awareness. I studied um, neuro-linguistic programming. Um, I, was, I did as many sort of courses and got coaching and mentoring um, as I could and um, it was... It was progressive. I was surrounded by a really good group of people who were there to support me, but those that wouldn't tell me what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear. Um, so, the tough love, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's wonderful. It's great that you're able to tell your story and share it because I think it's a lot more common than people actually realise. Because most people are not confident or comfortable enough to share that or courageous enough to share it so it's wonderful that you've that you can share that now during that time you mentioned your older sister was a role model where else did you get inspiration was there any like was it an Oprah moment or was there a, a particular quote or was there an author or some other inspiration that that helped you move forward there, oh, there were so many. Um, I think I started watching TED Talks and one that really stands out as being, um, as having a huge impact was Brene Brown and her power, the power of vulnerability mm-hmm. and how she talked about, um, you know, standing in the arena and, and embracing the courage, like having the courage to, to push on and, and do it even though it hurts um, and is uncomfortable. And I think because one of the things that I automatically wanted to do was just shut down my emotions and um, you know put a shell around me to um, protect myself whereas what I needed to do is walk head on into um, the relationship emotional people side of things and um, and Brene Brown was a huge source of inspiration in that respect. Yeah, I think that I think you've picked a good one there. So I think it's one of the most, if not the most, watched TED talks there are. And yeah. she's had she's got a show on Netflix. Have you seen that? I have. I actually saw her live. Uh, she came to Australia about I think it was probably eight years ago um, and spoke to business chicks. And I, I was at that event and what she 
um, speaks about on Netflix was what she spoke about then. So um, I, I love it. I love the content. Fabulous. What a what a great experience. And now you've transferred all this, which I think is really key, that you've gone through this personal experience. So when you're then coaching people yourself and facilitating them to go through this this change to be a dynamic leader, you can actually speak from first-hand experience, which I think gives it that little bit of extra Pow, power, you know, a yeah. bit of extra, bit of extra zoom, bit of extra zest to it. Now, as part of the book, you talk about your tried and tested nine stage model. Now, I have to ask you, why are they, why are there nine stages? Uh, well, I started with three. So I start, or I actually started with two. So I started with, uh, relationships. So it's like, you've got to get the relationships right as a leader. And then, at the other end of the spectrum, um, you've, got to, you've got to deliver results. And so I sort of looked at those as being on two opposing ends of the spectrum. Uh, but the requirement for a leader was to really have a good balance, which is where I came up with the third one around inspiring respect. And so it's actually the third one, that, which is the middle one of the model, um, which looks at um, taking on different perspectives and being curious. And the one where I ask leaders just to sit with silence and to ask more than they um, tell and to listen more than they speak. And and I pulled it together as three. And then when I went through each of the three components, relationships, respect and results, I found that there was a natural progression of, you know, what are we saying and then what are we doing to actually back up what we're saying? So how are we walking the talk? How are we actually building credibility? And then... The third layer of that was around who are we being? What's the culture that we're defining for our team? So it was a little bit of an evolutionary cycle. It started out as sort of three things and then just grew from there. But grew to a point where when I got to the nine, I was like, this is, this is actually the fundamentals of leadership. And if you can get these nine things right, then you can adapt to everything else. You can, you can just go with it. Oh, I love it. It's really inspiring. Shelley Flett, congratulations, and I wish you continued success with your book, The Dynamic Leader. And if anyone listening wants to continue the conversation with you, they can find your website, ShellyFlett.com. Uh, they can uh, follow you on LinkedIn and Twitter. Absolutely. And your book is available, I'm assuming, wherever you buy books. <laughs> yes, yeah, on my website or Dimmix or, yeah, there's Amazon, lots of places. Fantastic. Now, I uh, just want to leave our listeners with something quite inspirational. Do you have a favourite quote or a favourite pearl of wisdom that sometimes when you find yourself in that little bit of hole, we all do that uh, probably more often than we're prepared to admit, is there some phrase uh, or something that helps you move forward? Uh, yeah, probably the biggest one is we're all doing the best we can with the resources we have and be kind. Be kind. What a nice way to finish off. Shelley Flett, thank you very much for your valuable time today. Thanks, Jackie. Appreciate it. Thank you. We like being kind here on Taking Care of Business as we pick the best brains in the business world to help you grow your business. And we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest is a keynote speaker and advisor on new ways of working. It's a real big theme at the moment. She helps businesses think and work in ways that are more productive, collaborative, creative and effective. Lots of ibs in there. She's the author of Ish, The Problem with Our Pursuit for 
perfection and the life-changing practice of good enough. And it was the title of that book that attracted me to talk to our next guest because it is certainly a common thread about this pursuit of perfection and the, the downsides, uh, downsides of it. So I'd like to welcome, please, Lynn Kazali. Hello. Hello. Hi, Hello. How are you? Really well, thank you. But Good. before I start on this pursuit of pro- for perfection, which was really attractive to me because it is a common thread, mm. those listening would go, Lynn Kazali, Kazali up there, Kazali. Is there a yes. connection? Yes, yes. Quite a famous name. I probably get asked that, you know, every day. Pretty yeah. Much. Well, that's right. It, it, it'd be yeah. like if your surname was Barassi. It's an unusual name in a way. That's so, right. what's the yeah. connection with up there, Kazali? The very famous song. Yeah, the famous song, which and the song is after the famous footballer Roy Kazali, mm-hmm. and so he played last century. Now he played for like St Kilda and the Hawks and South Melbourne then the Swans, and was also coach. And he's my great great uncle. Oh, so wow! You could work that out in your own family. You know, think of your great granddad's brother. Yeah, right. Fantastic. Yeah. And so, who do you follow now? <laughs> Oh, look, I, I sort of share my football love around. But I did grow up in the sort of the Moorabbin area, so that's where the Saints, you know, were drawing all their players from in the early days. Right. So I got pretty attached to them, I think. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's great to have that legacy and the heritage, particularly with such a it's a cool name. I mean, it you is. know, it's yeah, just uh, yeah. it's it's almost that the Hollywood producers <laughs> would have given it to you if you didn't have it naturally. So, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's a yeah, it's a name to be proud of. Yeah, yeah well, I definitely. suppose uh, is, is it only in Victoria or do other people around Australia know of it? Oh, predominantly Victoria, but yeah. there's also um, some of the Kazali, uh up in Cairns. You know, there's the stadium and there's the social club and the same in Darwin. So oh, okay. it's certainly spreading around. And I think I think uh, Roy Kazali was sort of inducted into the, the Swans Hall of Fame. So now a lot more Sydney soders are, are across it too. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I think it's it's still Well, it's funny, my name being Mitchell, it's no connection Mm. with, but my dad actually played for Essendon. So Ah. there's a a bit of a connection there, but of course no no one ever asks me that because it's Mitchell, (laughs) it's like Smith, you know. Uh, There there you go, something in common. But let's talk about this drive for perfection, uh, which which, uh, there is a bit of a parallel there with elite sports people because they have this issue, but elite business people also have this issue, but not even elite, the average business person, and it's so misguided. Uh, mm. So what, what drew you to writing about this pursuit of perfection? Well, I'm, a, I'm probably a reformed perfectionist now. I was going to say I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I was. And a, a combination of a couple of things, I, I did some work with some agile software development teams. So I started to see how they were willing to put software and apps and things out there into the public use and they weren't finished. You know, they were just in early stages, but what they were able to do was test their initial work to see how well it was received. And I was like, hey, I like this idea. Um, and then I also did some um, performance with Impro, uh, Impro Melbourne some years ago. And so it's been a bit of a collision of both of these things that you can make stuff up, mm. like improvisation, and it's actually pretty good. And then in software development, you can put stuff out there and it's not fully formed or not fully finished, and it's pretty good. So the idea of good enough um, and 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 that we can go for good enough, go for somewhat, and that's what ish means, sort of near enough, good enough. 
near enough is good enough. Mm, yeah, many, okay. Many, many things. Yeah, I, I really like that. So where does the line look? I'm sure it's blurry, but maybe not. Maybe you've got it clear. But where is the line between excellence and high standards and perfection? Well, all of these things are, are unknown to us until we do define them. So, you know, lots of industries work in ways where they have to reach particular standards. You know, you think of food handling and engineering and construction and healthcare. Uh, and so they have certain standards they have to reach. But when we're going for perfection, it's usually something that we conjure up in our mind. And so it's an, a mental image and we haven't actually defined what the standard is. And that's why going for perfect, perfection is so, you know, draining in a way because they just keep going and going and going and there's no... There's no sign of when we're going to stop because we don't know what the standard is. Oh, okay. So then we reach what we think is perfection. Then when we get there, we go, hang on, it's not perfect. And you just keep going. Yeah. So and then you don't, uh, you don't feel good about it. And mm. so there's this terrible trap or cycle of I'm going for perfection. I can't get there. I still feel crap about it. Mm. So I must try harder next time. And so this cycle continues and in fact it's better for us to say you know what forget perfect just go for something that's functional and good enough and put it out there and test it just like the software developers see how it goes yeah, that's a and really then good... and then work in iterations let's see if we can improve it over time now in uh in your book uh you talked about you had uh some research it was some mm. according to some further research 41,000 subjects mm. uh were uh, researched by some PhD researchers Thomas Curran and Andrew Hill mm. and they found that perfectionism is on the rise why Yes Yeah look I think it's driven by you know our our competitive world you know things are more um I won't say dramatic, but things can be a little bit more, um, there can be more pressure on us to do well. But I'm certain it's also this, the idea of social media, you know, and, and just access to the internet. So it's much easier for us, say, to gather lots more information. So perfectionists are also known as maximizers. They keep gathering information. They're not sort of satisfied. So, it's, a, it's quite easy to keep looking and keep searching and keep gathering information um, just, you know, on our mobile devices. But perfectionism also involves often comparison. So it's also quite easy to compare ourselves with others when you look at social media and think, oh, I'm not doing as well as I hoped I would or I expected to or I'm not doing as well as them. So it, it happens, perfectionism is happening anyway, but the world is kind of getting more competitive and then you've got some of these social media and information pressures as well. Yeah, so I know uh, with Facebook they have uh, a philosophy in their offices about failing quickly mm. um, and uh, and it's which which is around that close enough is good enough almost like to actually just say come on hurry up if you're going to make a mistake make it fast mm. just do it and then move on uh, which is some benefits to that I can also see some downsides to it but it's interesting that it's been driven by the tech sector that close enough is good enough I think that's a really nice message it's a shame that they're not great communicators that it's not <laughs> it's not getting out for enough but um yeah well that's one of the, the sectors that I've worked in so I've been observing over a number of years how they do work it, it might not be fail but it's 
test, test mm. early and test often rather than fail fast, I think, because mm. no perfectionist wants to fail. Like no. that word doesn't, it doesn't even come into their vocabulary. That's why they work so hard. Yeah, right. So if we look at it more as try testing things, put an experiment out there and see how it goes and get some valuable insights, then that can help you refine what you're working on. Yeah, well, it's funny you said that because I'm always a big fan of pilots and testing, mm, but I, fi- I find a resistance from entrepreneurs, startups, small business owners who have this sense that it's going to take too long, it's going to take too long, I haven't got mm. time to do the testing and they mm. just want to go fly straight into it and try and it's, it's, it's a real challenge. Have you found that in your experience? Yeah, I think there's that, that path of, oh, I'm going to keep working on this until it's finished and I, I think, well, what if it's a bit wrong or what if it's not you know, what if it's incorrect at the moment? You're now not going to know until you've done a heap more of now wasteful work. Mm. So why don't you do a bit of work, what we call an increment of work, test it, get some feedback to see is this work, is this going to work? Do people like it? Has it got leaks? Uh, you know, it could be the first version of a website or it could be a book or it could be uh, a workshop or some consulting. And then once you've got some feedback on it, then you know you can keep uh, you get that validation and, and, I guess, course correction. And the course corrections are a lot smaller now and less wasteful than if you keep doing, uh, trying to go for higher and higher quality. Yeah, t- uh, great advice. Now, mm. you mentioned in the book as well three dangers to be aware of uh, and the three main ways entrepreneurs let perfectionism, perfectionism hinder their efforts. What are those three ways? Oh, gee, I didn't know it was going to be a quiz. Oh, well, one was all talk. This is is in your book. Oh. Does it remember? Do you remember? (laughs) I've put you on the spot now. I'm sorry, Lynn. Let's put our guests on the spot and see if she remembers her content. See if you remember your book. And put another iteration out. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I'll I'll, I'll give you some prompts. The first one is all talk. Yeah, yeah. Does that ring bells? procrastinating so you, you oh, keep blabbing on about great yes. ideas that you've got but you don't actually ever put them into practice yes that yeah. that would be uh, in my experience number one people not starting yes because yeah. they're procrastinating and stuffing yes. around and it's yeah. just like yeah. come on and that incremental start is really key i think exactly just start with a little something a little a little slice of of work yeah, and then, and then the other is the opposite, is not stopping, which you've already that's mentioned it. as well. Yeah, so that's the perfectionism of not knowing when's the end of this task or activity or project. And um, I think lots of us have kind of, you know, embarked on a project, whether it's a, a bathroom renovation or it's, um, some creative project for, for our kids, that uh, we don't know where to stop and we just keep going and going and going because it's not yet reached that image that we had in our mind of, yeah, so uh, you mentioned the good old famous Pareto principle of the 80-20 mm. rule. Yeah. Uh, so tell us what you mean by that, how, how to use it. Yeah, so Vilfredo Pareto noticed in Italy that um, 80% of the land was owned by just uh, 20% of people. Mm. Um, so the same thing applies to uh, work effort, that you only need to put a little bit of effort in, 20%, and you can get a massive 80% return on your effort. Um, but that also means that you can probably be wasting 80% of your time because it, all it's delivering is a mere 20% of results. So choose the better value tasks, 
start working on them and uh, you only need to do about 20% effort and you'll get an incredible result. Lynn, does perfectionism come in different flavours or is it just one one size fits all? Very different flavours. Um, so there's perfectionism where we have high standards for ourselves. So self-oriented perfectionism. Mm. There's perfectionism where we think society holds high standards for us. Yeah. And then the third type is where we have high standards for others. And they're all on the rise, uh, particularly mm-hmm. that middle one where we think society expects more of us. And, and it's not true. You know, this is, this is the, the fallacy that we're like slaving away thinking that uh, higher standards and higher quality is expected of it. And it actually isn't. We can, we can afford to relax the pressure. And most of the time, people don't notice. Yeah, amazing. Relax the pressure. I like that. What a a nice way to finish up. Lynn Kazaley, thank you very much for your valuable time today. Your book, Ish, The Problem with Our Pursuit for Perfection and the Life-Changing Practice of Good Enough. And I assume it's everywhere you can buy a book. You can get that. And Yeah, and if it's not, ask for it. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. You can go to Lynn Kazaley, easy to spell, uh, .com. Uh, yes. and, uh, and what's your favourite social media platform? Um, look, I'm on, on all of them at the moment, but I'm probably a little bit more on LinkedIn at the moment. Okay, well, you can link up with Lynn Kazaley on LinkedIn and find out uh, more of her work. It's certainly a fascinating area. The fact that it's on the rise, Lynn, it shows mm. that uh, reading your book will put, if, if you know a perfectionist, buy them Lynn's book. Give them yeah, that that's for a the great birthday. idea. Yeah. So if you get given a few copies, you know, hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> I like it very much. Lynn Kazaley, always a delight. Thank you. I wish you continued success up there, Thank Lynn Kazaley, and uh, <laughs> we look forward to our next encounter. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your knowledge, insights, right here on Taking Care of Business. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest is a sought-after coach, speaker and strength psychology expert. I want to find out more. I'd like to welcome you, Dan Shi. Welcome. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you for having me on the show. Good to have you, you, Dan. Now, what's a strength psychology expert? I hadn't heard that term before. Could you tell me what it is? Sure. Um, Strength psychology is a part of positive psychology and that's okay. a whole new, another terminology as well essentially it's based on the foundation all of us are born with certain gifts uh, natural strengths we don't have enough uh, often we are not aware of that um, so um, if we're not aware of them uh, you know you might not um, manage your work effectively you might choose your wrong profession um, and you often hear people saying, oh, somehow feel dissatisfied, somehow feel like my potential is not reached. But often what that meant is that they're not sure of their gifts and they're not using them properly. Right, okay. Now, I did notice here in your bio, it says here, so you won't mind me mentioning it, but you hit rock bottom in 2008 while working as an executive for a Fortune 100 company uh, and you were compelled to search for more meaningful ways to work and live. Now, when you hit rock bottom, how did you know you hit rock rock bottom? What were some of the signs? I remember so clearly, I have always been one of these people since a child. I just full of energy, very ambitious, highly driven, go, 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 you know, so never stop. I'm always very hopeful. And back around 2007, 2008, 
and I was a very successful executive, like you pointed out, for a global technology company. I became a mom already. I had two beautiful kids. I had everything on the outside. And I just remember, I just got to this stage. I was so tired and I was um, miserable. And I was flat in terms of my energy and I lost all my drive. And so I still turn up to work like um, an autopilot. I can still capably do my job. But I just remember my drive's gone. And to me, yeah, um, to me, it was uh, quite a rock bottom. And then on top of that, while I was struggling with how I felt, I, I didn't have any tools and I didn't understand what was happening with me. So I just kept turning up, trying to be strong. And eventually, I think my body just cannot lie. Um, I was so stressed with how I feel uh, physically and mentally. I eventually collapsed in a taxi after another day of business meeting. Mm. And I was taken to the emergency operation 36 hours later. Apparently, I had already contracted a life-threatening illness inside of my body. And I wasn't even aware of it. And, you know, my kids at the time was only three-year-old and nine-year-old. And what... Um, what made me really sad at the time was my doctor told me it was completely caused by my stress. Uh, my stress. Um, so meaning it was avoidable. So, yeah, so that was definitely the rock bottom in my life. So how did you uh, turn that around? So obviously you had to recover from, um, from, from a medical perspective, but what did you do mentally to, to rebuild and get back to where you wanted to be? After after I recovered myself, I think I wanted one of the thing is before that wake up call. So I always call my emergency operation at a wake up call. Before that, you know what, Jackie, I was always hoping for a radical change because I was thinking maybe it's my job, you know, maybe it's where I live. So I was always looking for like external change that that would make me happier. So while I was struggle how I felt, it wasn't like I wasn't thinking about solutions. So I spent a lot of time you know, in daydreaming, could say that. So when the operation happened, when I realized life can be snapped out of you, just like that, in a split second, um, I was very determined um, that even before, you know, I got wheeled into the operation room, if I came out of this alive, <clears throat> I made a promise with myself. I was determined to find out how I can live my everyday in the best way possible. And rather than waiting for a magic solution to change everything around me, I was very determined to find out a way that how I can live better every day from just that day onwards. Um, And I think that mindset changed uh, me. I instantly jumped into research. I did extensive research over the years. I even enrolled myself to a Master of Coaching Psychology degree. While I was still doing my C-level executive role, and the relief I found from my research was what I felt was normal, and it can be um, it can be changed. So I would say the knowledge really helped me um, to start changing my mindset. This is possible, and I can change from today. So it's eleven years since that time, uh, and you've now written your first book called "Come Alive: Life, Live a Life with More Meaning and Joy." So. It's taken you, well, let's say 11, let's say 10 years to get to this point. How come you're writing a book now? The 
tend to actually happen much quicker than I thought. Um, you know how I talked to you about I went to do my coaching psychology degree. Mm. I learned so much about human behavior and how our human perform um, very quickly. And I started to apply a lot of tools. And one of the tools is you mentioned around strength psychology. I realized how I was working was wrong. I was doing, you know, I was not tapping into my own natural ability, my natural gifts. I was trying to be a perfectionist, always hoping to improve myself based on the weakness, you know, and there was a lot of things like pushing myself every day and not asking for help. And so by using tools like strength psychology, so by tapping into my, uh, you know, my natural ability and not worrying too much about my weaknesses, by changing how I work every day in terms of my habits and everything, I was actually able to do the exactly same job. I didn't change my job. It was the exactly the same job, just in a different company. I was able to turn up my work. I'm feeling motivated, energized, and I had loads of time for my family and myself. So I saw the change within roughly six months. I started to teach my team, and I started to help other people inside of my company and even in the industry. I started to voluntarily mentor and coach other people. Um, so, but I, I remained in corporate, and I think that's the message I'm trying to say here. I didn't make a radical change, but I changed because of the habits I have reestablished for myself. And the reason taking me so long to write a book um, was really because I only left corporate three years ago, two and a half years ago, actually. So, I'm, I'm, you know, now I do what I do full time as a coach speaker. And so now I have the time to actually write down all the learning I have gathered um, in the last 10 years. Also because now I have worked with hundreds of people in my coaching practice, I feel like it's just not me talking and I actually have a lot of, you know, evidence. Um, I get to share the learning I can share with, with people. You mentioned in the, in the book it's about making the choice and giving yourself permission to be happy now and I, I got stuck on that word permission. How important is it to give yourself permission to be happy? You know, that's such a great question, Jackie, and I'm so glad you picked it up. One of the wake-up moments for me was when I was, you know, you can call that the pursuit of happiness and fulfillment journey I was taking on for a very long time, is I realized it was because I didn't give myself the permission to be happy because so many of us, especially the high achievers, we were brought up believing success and achievement will give you happiness. So we did not understand. Actually, these other things can be a result of your hard work, but has very little association with how you actually feel at a day-to-day basis. But because we're under assumption, only if you have achieved all of these things, then you can be happy. We are not allowing yourself to be happy. We are fearful that might make us less driven, might make us complacent. But once you realize you can actually be happy right now with what you have already achieved, it starts to give you so much more um, energy and so much more um, less pressure. You can actually perform far better than your under extreme you know, dissatisfaction, discontent, and the constant pressure you put onto yourself. So I would say that is very, very important. In the work I do with my clients, often that is one of the first things I get them to think about when is the last time you give yourself permission to go, you know what, I can be happy. I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to be happy. 
Yeah, I think that uh, element of permission is a real key to unlock so much good stuff. It's a great read. Come alive, live a life with more meaning and joy. You, Dan, thank you for sharing uh, your story. That takes a lot of courage to do that, and I think that helps helps enormous amount of people. I think it's an area that people don't talk openly enough about. I think there's a they feel ashamed or they feel a failure or embarrassed or whatever it is that's holding them back. And uh, with people like yourself talking about your experiences uh, and then offering to help people work their, work their way through that and helping drive to give them permission to be happy is it's a wonderful purpose in life and I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you, Becky. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share this message and I must say that was the main purpose of me writing and sharing the story is I want people to feel absolutely okay to not to feel okay at the time and know that is not a unique problem. And by talking about it, by learning from what other people have done, you know it's not unique and can absolutely be solved. Well, we can continue the conversation. If you're interested in continuing that with you, Dan, you can find her on LinkedIn and also her website, udanshi.com. And we love continuing conversations here on Taking Care of Business. I look forward to our next encounter, you, Dan. Thanks again. Thank you, Jackie, for having me. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Care of Business as we like sharing the knowledge and talking about lots of really key issues in business. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Now, this is a topic that is really hot at the moment and it's all about resilience, stress, pressure management and next guest knows all about high pressure situations. Uh, He works with entrepreneurs and SMEs and we all know those that do run their own business. There may be short bursts of stress or long-standing situations that require patience and resilience to get through and rise up. He has also worked with big corporates like Coles Meyer, Toyota, St George and the Victorian Parliament. I think politicians at the moment certainly need his help. I'd like to welcome to the show Michael Larkinblatt. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Really great to have you here, Michael. Now, when you're doing corporate work, is there much difference between the corporate work and the work you do with entrepreneurs or SMEs? Look, it's different type of pressure, but the response to pressure is consistent. What we're seeing now is that people want more in less time. They have fewer resources, so they're being squeezed a lot more for their resources, for their ability to apply themselves under pressure. From a corporate point of view, we're looking at a lot more stakeholders influencing decisions. From an entrepreneurial point of view, Business owners are touching more things. They are being more things in their business. So they're spread a lot more thin and they're feeling the impact of pressure in that way. Okay. So I thought it might be a good place to start uh, talking about some definitions because it got me thinking, and some of our listeners might be thinking the same thing, what's the difference between stress and pressure and resilience? So those three, how do they all sort of fit in together? Certainly. Stress is the byproduct when pressure is not managed well. It's sort of like the blood that comes out when I cut myself is the stress. Uh, The the, the cut itself is the result of bad pressure management, if you can use that comparison. Resilience is the way in which I handle pressure, not so much that I just 
cope and get through better, but rather how I am a better version of myself. The traditional approach to, to pressure is being how much can I take, how much can I tolerate, and it's seen as an ability to sort of just toughen up and get through. And don't you know, don't um, mistake me that there's great value in doing that. However, in modern day resilience, it's not just how well you can cope and how many things you can take on, but how well you can actually be, or how well, how well you can actually apply yourself and be the best version of yourself to actually thrive and be as dollar productive as you can in high pressure, but without burning yourself out without actually having a fallout or a cost in some part of of your world personally or professionally. Yeah, oh, that's a great explanation because I was thinking about that. I was thinking pressure, stress, but you're also dealing with things like setbacks and rejections and that's something entrepreneurs really have to learn how to manage. Is that your experience? Oh, absolutely. Look, with the the amount of setbacks and pressures or, or, or rejection that we deal with nowadays, is exponential compared to what it was even sort of 10 or so years ago. Markets are more competitive, um, budgets are tighter, and we are doing more with less time, which simply means I'm going to face more roadblocks. So there are more people competing for the same, so there are, I've got to work harder and deal with more rejections and setbacks. You'll find this across every industry, from professional services to real estate, through sales, a whole range of industries, which simply means this, that business owners or people in, in, in corporate world need to understand how they can take a setback, not be bogged down by it, not be stopped, not be slowed down, but to bounce back faster so that they don't lose a beat when things don't go well or they've put a lot of work into a, a client or a sale and it falls over at the end and that may then affect their cash flow and their budget. How do they stay focused? Because one of the core things in business is that your energy now is your currency. Mm. So you've got to be able to invest that wisely. So your ability to be resilient and bounce back has direct impact on your bottom line. Yeah, and it's not a matter of if, it's when, as far as rejection, setbacks, uh, when you are running your own business. And uh, I, I get a bit upset about this um, distorted focus on follow your passion, you know, rainbow, rainbows and unicorns. And, and there's not enough talk about, okay, so what do you do when you have a bad day? What, what happens when you spend hours and days on a proposal or you're pitching for business and, and you, you, know, you, you lose it or, or you don't even hear back from them? People don't even give you the courtesy of letting you know. All these sort of setbacks and then it can really be very demoralising and can affect your confidence. It can affect so many areas, and of course, that then bleeds into your personal life, doesn't it? Absolutely. And when you say, when, when a person's in a business or an area where because they're passionate about it, they're putting heart and soul into what they do. Mm. And in many ways, you're, you're working harder than a lot of other people because you're so committed both personally and you have skin in the game financially as well. So when you put that work into a proposal or into building up a, a bunch of relationships with possible prospects and clients, and then they all fall over or series them fall over, and you see the fallout that comes from that both financially and personally, you start thinking, what's wrong with me? The questions we're asking are the wrong questions. You're saying, well, what's, what's wrong with me? What am I doing wrong? You know, why is this happening to me? But the reality is this is just part and parcel with business. And when you're passionately involved, the rejection feels more personal. Now, that's not to say don't be passionately involved. You want to put your heart into what you do. But we want to understand also that that is going to mean that the rejection is going to hurt harder or hurt more because you are 
taking things to heart. And one of the great importance of resilience is to be lighter and to bounce back so that, you know, expect the rejection but be able to recover from it faster. Yeah, and I know that you've got lots of answers of how we can do that and you'll be sharing these fascinating and useful and practical insights at the upcoming BITE conference, Business Innovation Technology and Entrepreneurialism, uh, which I'll be joining you there, Michael. I'm looking forward to, to it very much. And so what will you be actually talking about at BITE for those that will come and have a look and listen to what you've got to say? So we're looking at a couple of things. The first, we need to understand the changing landscape of business. You see, if we're busy just working harder and we're not really adapting to the changing landscape of pressure, all we're doing is chasing our tails, which means that people in business are doing, 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 but not getting any progress. So we're going to talk about how to understand what's happening around them. We're also going to provide with a couple of skills and insights around what it means to be resilient and how you specifically build those strengths and how that translates to business bottom line. It's not just these touchy-feely skills, these soft skills that feel nice, but they translate to business outcome. And I want to link the behaviour change to a take-home ability to be able to perform better and be more personally productive and profitable within your business. And we'll also look at the aspect of adaptability and resilience, that it's a combination of skills. It's not just simply working harder and being stronger and having a tougher shield, but there are ways that allow you to perform at your best. So this is really the the psychology of implementation and what it takes to be able to bounce back and how you share that with your team. So there'll be a whole bunch of things we'll talk about. I love a segue, Michael, and thank you for leading me to one because your background is actually in psychology. But I also noticed, and I've never come across anyone with a, a more unique background, that you've combined <laughs> that with shiatsu therapy and martial arts. Martial arts and psychology, oh, where do we start? <laughs> well, it's, it's an interest. It is probably, as you said, one of the most unique backgrounds when it comes to resilience and in a business context. I guess that what it allows me to do is that the martial arts gives me an understanding of how to read patterns in people and how to perform Mm. in high-pressure environments because nothing says focus when someone's trying to hit you and hurt you. So there's a a great um, learning that comes from staying calm under pressure. And for me, the psychology is about understanding behaviour, that what you see is not always what you get. So often if you can understand what motivates us uh, and how we get things done or what we do to avoid activation and avoid implementation, this is key to resilience. And the shiatsu really, it, it looks at the way people process pressure. And if you can understand the way you process pressure mentally and even physically, how well you hold it, and if you can flip that and you know what switches to flip, you just you go from coasting or just getting through your day and dealing with stress to being high performance and bouncing back. It is a, it's a very distinct transition between those two. And I find that these behavioural changes is what allows people to build that resilience deliberately rather than just endure, endure and then burn out in the process. Yeah, I always find that the most beneficial and uh, useful consultants and speakers are those that have had uh, an interesting eclectic background, you know, to you've got lots of zigs and zags there because it's about cross-fertilising that information. I find most people uh, that that are sort of stayed in their one lane the whole time 
can get very one-dimensional in their thinking, uh, particularly if they are a thought leader, which you you know, and you're speaking and educating, which you do. Uh, I think that's great that you can actually use that for cross-fertilising, but I was thinking about psychology and martial arts and re- resilience, and it's almost the perfect recipe because it's about self-defence. It's about coping and motivation, and you mentioned the word word earlier, which is about bounce back. And uh, and I think if I put all that in a pot, Michael, and, and I had to get the jus of you, I think it is about bounce back. I think that's really a real key to it. And, and that would be absolutely cool, not just to myself, but also the to the message and how you apply that message. As you draw the analogy to the martial arts, it's actually been said that real learning in martial arts only occurs when you get your black belt. That's sort of where the true learning starts. Everything up to that is your preparation, which simply means that in life, you've got to go through stuff first sometimes before your ears are ready to listen. And I find that working with people in business who have some skin in the game, uh, they're not just green to the old thing, they've turned up with this wonderful passion and ideal they've gone for, but people who have put in the hard yard, but they understand that business can be tough, they're more ready to listen. And I find taking practical approaches, not just wonderful theoretical stuff, but stuff which I've lived myself. I've been driving business now for 30 years, um, lived through ups and downs, uh, and I'm, I'm a dad of three kids, so I get the fact how it can be hard to balance work and life at times. And the whole concept of work-life balance is this lovely term that doesn't really exist. And the whole concept of resilience is not about perfection or being bulletproof, but rather your intrinsic and deliberate ability to have a special relationship with pressure that allows you to be the best version of yourself. What a lovely way to finish off. Michael Lightenblatt, thank you so much for your precious time. Our ears and eyes will be ready to listen to your pearls of wisdom at the Bike Conference. I really appreciate your time today and look forward to seeing you there. Absolute pleasure, and thank you very much for the interview. Loved it, love it. We love stress, managing stress, managing pressure, managing resilience. We are going to bounce back here on Taking Care of Business right after this short break. That's the end of another stimulating show. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you missed a lot, the podcast will be on the website, artorpfm.com.au, and you can connect with me to continue the conversation, Jackie Mitchell, on social media or at brandstorm.com.au. Thank you today to our worldly and thought-provoking guests. We look forward to your company next Friday at 11am. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business.